Well, good morning. Good to see you all here today. Uh, let's grab our Bibles once you're, the offering is past you and go to uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when we're looking at verses 1 through 8. Um, so in the Lord of the Rings, there's this very famous, I don't know how many of you are Lord of the Rings fans. Um, got one woo there. That's good. So one of you, uh, two. Um, <clears throat> so there's this, there's this kind of famous scene in the, in the first movie you, know, you might know there's a, a wizard named Gandalf and, you know, kind of very powerful. And there's this, this little hobbit named Bilbo, one of the first hobbits. And, and he, uh, he is the possessor of this, this ring uh, that we come to know as like the ring of power, one of the nine rings. And he holds this, he holds this one ring. And, uh, and, and what, what, what we've come to discover is that this ring sort of possesses its possessor and, and becomes this obsession. I mean, he starts to call it precious, and uh, it becomes this, this thing that he can't let himself go of. Gandalf discovers he has the ring, comes to his house. Bilbo's about to take off on a journey, and Gandalf uh, says to him, Bilbo, you've, you've had it long enough. Basically, let it go. Let it, give it up and walk away from it. This is a really powerful thing. You don't know what you're dealing with here. And Bilbo gets angry at him and says, you know, you, you, you just want to take it from me. You're a magician and you want to kind of do what you want to do with it. And if you remember the movie, it's this moment where, you know, the, the screen gets dark. Gandalf like grows, kind of grows. It gets like this haze in the room. And he says, Bilbo Baggins, do not, you know, whatever, consider me a conjurer of cheap tricks. And then he says, I am not doing this to rob you. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And Bilbo kind of falls into a puddle of tears and he runs over to Gandalf and he hugs him. Gandalf uh, whispers to Bilbo, he says, all these long years we've been friends. Trust me as you once did. Let it go. Bilbo decides he's about to take off on his journey. He lets the ring go. He walks out. He's on the road. He turns around. He's been writing a book and he turns around to Gandalf and he says to him, I thought up an ending to my book. And then he says, here it is. And he lived happily to the end of his days. It's, of course, a, a, an allegorical in some ways story that, that that's been, what's happening here is Bilbo is realizing that, that true happiness, the way he's going to live happy to the end of his days is by not giving up something that's good for him, but giving up something that ultimately will kill him, that Gandalf is not ultimately after punishing uh, Bilbo. He's after helping him. He doesn't want to rob him. He wants to help him. Now, I say this because this really is a great illustration of the life of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, that, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, listen how it says this. For whoever would draw near to God must first believe that he exists and then that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you hear this? That God is never after punishing people. That if he, he's never robbing you, he's helping you. He is never condemning you or punishing you if you're his child. Everything God does is to help you. Now, now this is important. I want to I make sure we kind of get our bearings in, in where we are together, right? That, that Paul has gone to this city called Thessalonica. He's had to be taken away early from them prematurely. In fact, he says he was torn away from them. 
And then last week we looked, he says, he's writing back to me. He says, man, I'm praying that God will allow me to come again to you. And why? He says, so that I can supply what is lacking in your faith. I want to come and I want to teach you. I want to help you understand some things. I want to fill up some holes in your faith. And he ends chapter three that we looked at last week by saying, so that you will be blameless in holiness until the coming of Christ. Okay, so he says, my teaching is after that. I really want to come and I want you to understand. I want you to understand what you believe and then how you should behave, okay? And today we turn a corner, we get to where Paul said, now I've talked to you about belief. Let me talk to you about how behavior comes out in light of that belief, all right? And so let's stand, let's read. I want to read um, verses one through eight of chapter four. Go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word and let's see where Paul goes now when he turns this corner. He says, finally then, brothers, chapter four, verse one, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how, to, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. Verse two, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so what Paul's doing is saying, okay, I want to teach you how to live a holy life. You're going to see it over and over in verses one through eight, all about holiness. It's about holiness, about holiness. I want you to see this as a theme running through these verses, right? And he's going to say, we live, this is how, in other words, we live in light of the gospel. The gospel doesn't just change what we believe, it changes how we behave, right? So it doesn't really matter what you believe, we could say, if there's not a fundamental change, because, because Paul's saying this is actually what will result as, as, as a result of you believing the gospel, it will change how you behave toward fellow man, toward the world, toward God. And Paul's going to say, let me show you now how the gospel intersects three very real parts of human existence. I love this, that Paul's so practical. In fact, the rest of chapter four is showing us how the gospel intersects three areas, sex, work, and we might say grief, death. Now, aren't these the three main preoccupations of, uh, of, of, of anyone? Sex, work, death. What do we do about all this? And Paul says, here, let me show you. Let me show you how the gospel comes into each one of these uh, different areas. So now, let me just say something about the gospel and Christian morality. Okay, because here's what Paul does. He's going to say, I want to delve now into how Christian belief results in Christian ethics, Christian behavior, right? Uh, we, we, we cannot divorce these two. Paul's going to say this. If, essentially, if you're a Christian, then you absolutely will behave in certain ways. And I don't think Paul's too threatened by people saying you're such a legalist, right? It's all about behavior for you. Paul's going, no. No, we'll get the gospel right, that you're not accepted before God because of your behavior, but when you are accepted by God, it will change your behavior. 
So Paul's gonna go, look, look, what, the, what salvation doesn't do for you is give you a free pass on obedience and disobedience. It doesn't give you a free pass on the law and you can do whatever you want. It never does that. In fact, it will make you more holy. It'll make you conform more to the law. So Paul says, when I came, he says, so this is apparently how Paul taught them. In verse two, he says, this is the instructions we gave you. When I was with you, we talked like this. We talked about Christian moral ethics. We talked about how you should behave. John Stott picks up on this and he says, within a few weeks or months, he, Paul, had taught the Thessalonian converts not only the essence of the good news, but also the essence of the good life. Not only about faith in Jesus, but also about the necessity of good works by which saving faith is authenticated and without which it is dead. You hear this? There's no such thing as a Christian life that doesn't have works of righteousness, us behaving in certain ways. Let me just say something. You're a mom or dad. You are a pastor. You're a, a teacher. You are a, somebody who disciples, like we talked about last week. You ought to, to teach your students. You ought to teach those who are looking up to your spiritual leadership the gospel, for sure. But you must also not stop there and show them, just like Paul does every time, how your Christian beliefs come into and transform your Christian behavior. You have not finished discipling until then. Always. So, so, so Paul's going to say, yes, the gospel comes first. You, you, if you try to behave without a heart that's transformed, it is, it's going to be something that, that, that results, it's just fut it's futile. There, there's, there's, there's no hope for you, right? But if the gospel comes, then morality, we could say, Christian ethics, behavior, comes right on its heels. So that what Paul would say is that new life in Christ is a holy life. Okay, so this is what I want you to see, the gospel and Christian morality, the gospel and holiness, we could call it, all right? Now, let's look at how this passage lays out. In verses one through the first part of verse three, Paul's essentially gonna say, let me show you how to please God generally. This whole passage, all of chapter four, is about how to please God. He's gonna show us those three areas, okay? And then he's gonna get specific in verses, the second part of verse three through verse eight and show us how to, how to uh, please God specifically, all right? And then we'll do some other points here, but let, let, let's, let's get through this, all right? So, so in verses one through three, he says, how do you please God in general? Well, look what he says. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how to walk and to please God, just you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So Paul is talking all about how to please God. Now let me say this. The first impulse of a Christian, of somebody who goes from darkness to light, somebody who goes from death to life, somebody who realizes what Christ has done for them, is, is I want to please God. Like baseline, if I do nothing else, I just want to please God. Paul, if we ask Paul, Paul, what does that look like? How do I please God? Paul would say, by living a holy life. By reflecting the Father that you say you serve. You're holy, 
because he's holy. You strive for holiness because. It's not just believing holy things. It's not just having right doctrine. It's not just, let me give you some big words, it's not just orthodoxy, it's orthopraxy, right? It's not just what you know, it's what you do. And so this is what Paul's after, right? In fact, look, he says, he says in, in verse two, this is how you ought to walk. Verse one, um, yeah, and then he says in verse one, how to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Do you hear all this? This is not about what they believe. Yeah, they gotta believe right things. But he said, you gotta do these things. Paul says, man, what, God's, what, what God wants you to do is please him and to do his will. So what's the will of God? You ever wrestled with this? Who do I marry? Where do I go to college? What job do I take? Should I live in this neighborhood or that neighborhood? Do I move to that city or this city? Like, What am I supposed to do? God, what is your will? If you ask Paul that question, do you see how he'd answer it in verse 3? Here's the will of God. I'm going to unwrap the mystery for you. It's not as wild and crazy as you think it is. It is your sanctification. By the way, it's one of the reasons we called this series Ordinary Christians, Extraordinary Times. How ordinary is it? It's not some, I mean, we're expecting like, you ready? I'm going to tell you the will of God. We'd be like, bated breath. All right, I want to know what that is. Tell me, suck it to me, God. Show me what you want. He says, I just want you to be more holy. I just want wants you to grow in holiness, to walk, to be sanctified. Now, what does that mean? What is this? What is holiness? Well, let me, let me just give you a working definition. I think the Bible is going to teach it. This would be sort of a summary of it. It's a lifetime process of becoming more and more like Jesus in attitude, motivation, and behavior. It's this lifetime process. In other words, do we ever arrive at I am holy? I mean, like, like practically, everything I do is holy. No. Are we ever fully pleasing to God in the sense of our behavior? No. You are fully pleasing to God right now in the sense that you are in Christ. If you're a, if you're a child of God, you are fully holy right now, positionally in Christ, but we are not practically holy, are we? So I don't arrive there. I don't get there. But the goal, Paul says, generally what God is after in the Christian life, what you should want as a Christian is I just want to please him. And I want to please him more and more and more, Paul says, verse 1. Keep doing this, Thessalonians. Keep doing this, Foothill Church. Keep doing this, Christian. Okay, now, that's generally. Now let's look specifically. How do we please God specifically? Look what he says. This is the will of God, your sanctification, verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, let's, let's talk about that, that second part of verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Why does Paul say he gets this place where saying, okay, I'm going to turn the corner. I'm going to start talking about Christian morality and ethics. And the first place I'm going to start is in the arena of sexual purity. Why does he start there? I think we can say two things. Number one, kind of just generally, that, that um, there has never been a culture in the history of the world that has not wrestled with what it means to be sexually pure, ever. You don't have to be Christian. 
Every culture wrestles with this. Paul comes along, speaks the gospel and says, I'm, I'm speaking to a culture that is wrestling. What, how does what I believe inform the behavior of sexual ethics? I think we think in America, like, man, if we could get back to this pristine moment, I don't know where it is, you know, is it, is it Puritan times? Is it the, you know, post-World War II? We just kind of had our acular. There has never historically been a moment in the history of the world when we had our sexual act together ever, in any culture ever. So, so Paul goes, okay, this is a big issue for everybody. I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about the gospel and sexual ethics. But the second thing I'd say is this. Paul is writing into the first century Roman world and in first century Rome, sexual promiscuity was rampant. It was everywhere. Like, we think we're unrepressed after the sexual revolution? We, I think we have this misconception that somehow there are things happening sexually today that no other culture was ever accepting of or didn't know anything about this kind of homosexuality or this kind of heterosexuality or whatever. No, no, they knew every kind. In fact, F.F. Bruce comments about this time in Roman history and listened about especially how it related to men. He says, a man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine while casual gratification was readily available from a harlot. The function of his wife was to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. Now hear me. What F.F. F. Bruce is talking about here is not what a guy would do is cheat on his wife behind her back. He's talking about this is culturally accepted. This is what a guy would do. He would have four lovers. He would run around. His wife knew it. The concubine knew it. The mistress knew it. Dissatisfaction of his sexual whims. And Paul says, I got to talk to this. Paul says, this is incompatible with the gospel. This is incompatible with what it means to be a Christian. These cannot exist in the same space. Here's what you need to know. One of the ways that the world of the first century knew that Christians were different, there were lots of ways, but here's one of them. There was a very clear line of demarcation between the sexual ethics of the world and the sexual ethics of the church. Let me say something to you, church. This is exactly how we're gonna be known. It's gonna be no different. Diognetus was, a, was an early church father and he says this, he's talking about Christians here. He says, they have a common table, but not a common bed. They share their meals, but not their wives. Why would he say that? In 21st century, we read that and go, of course not. Because of course so in first century Rome. That's what you did. So we hear, listen, let, let's, let's reframe this. What Diognetus is saying is that the early church looked at money and possessions and the food on their table and all that kind of stuff and said, whatever, you can have it all. Let's say it this way. They profaned that stuff. You know what that means? You know what profane? I don't mean like profanity. Profane means you just make it common. You make it like what? It's nothing. But to the early church, sex was, sex was sacred. What was happening in the culture? In the culture, sex was sacred. 
right? Sex was, sex was profane. Money and possessions were sacred. Welcome to 21st century America, right? We have done the exact same thing. Do you see that one of the things that will mark us out as a culture, as a, as a counterculture, is our sexual ethic, so Paul comes along, and what does he say? He says, abstain from sexual immorality. Now let's talk about that. that. That term sexual immorality is one word in the Greek, and it's the Greek word, just listen to it, because you'll hear something, porneia, right? Do you hear what it sounds like? It sounds like pornography. That's where we get our word from. And it is a word, it was a general term used to cover all manner of uh, sexual impurity, sexual immorality, Right? So, so Gene Edwards, he's a New Testament scholar, says this, porneia can be found in Greek literature. This is outside the Bible with reference to a variety of illicit sexual practices, including adultery, fornication, prostitution, and homosexuality. In the Old Testament, it occurs for any sexual practice outside marriage between a man and woman that is prohibited by the Torah. So, so it's anything. It's anything outside the bonds of marriage. In fact, let me do this, and I don't have time to go and, 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 and do all the support to show you where this comes from, but let me summarize for you very briefly what the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, has to say about sexual morality. I'm gonna give you three things, okay? The first thing the Bible teaches is this. The only form of sexual expression approved in the Bible is sex between one man and one woman within the bonds of marriage. And by the way, this is true of every major religion in the history of the world for millennia. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Roman Catholicism, right? Everyone has said this is the boundaries, and somehow we think within the last 50 years, we're more enlightened now. We've got a better understanding, so now we can go against millennia of, of religious teaching, cultural understanding. But the Bible's very clear on this. That's the only form that's, that, 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 that's accepted. Number two, sexual morality in all its expressions all those things that we just named above is a form of sinful brokenness brought on by the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter uh, 3. It, it's a product of the fall. It's a product of brokenness. All those things, all those, all those misapplications is a part of our sinfulness. And number three, the Bible is consistent in its condemnation of sexual morality. You will never find one favorable word about any form of sexual morality in the Bible, ever. So this is what the Bible teaches, okay? So Paul comes along, right, and says, you've got to abstain from sexual immorality. He's going to say, he's going to, say to the Corinthians, listen how strong these words are when it comes to sexual morality. How seriously should we take this? He says, do you not know, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These are strong words, right? Paul's saying this is really serious. In fact, he's talking about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Like, God is an avenger, when we transgress these boundaries. But notice, now I want you to notice two things Paul doesn't say in verse three. 
He doesn't say avoid sexual morality. He says abstain from. Now, the reason I bring this up is I want to make sure we hear the strength of that word. Like avoidance, we could have somebody say, well, that's just kind of, hey, just take it in moderation. Never. The Bible will never, the biblical authors will never ask you to take in moderation something that the consequences for doing that is not inheriting the kingdom of God. There are things it says, hey, alcohol, moderation, don't cross the boundary into drunkenness, but moderation, okay? It'll never say that about sexual morality. Abstain from, don't do it. It's not moderation, it's prohibition. There must be none of it. The second thing I want you to know is he doesn't say, I want to be clear on this, he doesn't say abstain from sex. Now hear me, we've talked about this a lot at Foothill Church. God is pro-sex. God is not angry and, oh, I, I guess I'll put up with it. God invented it. It's his idea. It's a celebration within marriage. Paul will say, this is good. This is a gift from God in a marriage for the sake of the purity and wholeness of that married couple. I'm giving this to you. So, so God is an anti-sex. So Paul doesn't say that. Hey, you got to abstain from sex. We got to be these repressed individuals, right? There's a whole book in our Bible. We've preached through it, right? Song of Solomon that... Those are the most unrepressed people I've ever seen. I mean, they're going to say things that will make you blush because that's how God views sex. So, so he doesn't say abstain from. Now, but he does say there are rules. There are boundaries even within marriage for sex, okay? So let's look at the boundaries. Let's look at like these rules. Number one, I'll give you two rules and kind of a subpoint in the middle of one and two, but here's the first rule. The first rule is just a matter of context. That is, again, let me reiterate it, that, that sex is to be within the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, let me, let me just show you something here real quick. Look at verse three again. We're to abstain from sexual morality. Verse four, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now, we can take that verse and go, okay, this is a good word for all of us. It's true that, that one of the things that the spirit of God would do is give us self-control in the area of sexual purity. And I think that's a right application. But look at your Bible, especially if you're looking at the ESV. Notice there's a footnote uh, by the word body. And down at the bottom, it tells you that the way that actually reads in the Greek is this way. Each one ought to know how to possess his own vessel. That's what it actually reads in the Greek. So scholars are like, what does that mean? Well, some are going to say it means you've got to know how to control your vessel, your body. Others are going to say, no, the vessel refers to a wife because there's some Greek literature about that. And so what he's saying is each ought to know how to take a wife for himself. So he's talking about the covenant union of a man with a wife. Don't satisfy your sexual urges outside of marriage. That's what God has given you. Part of the gift of marriage is giving you an arena in which your, your sexual impulses can be satisfied. Okay, so Paul's saying, it's, here's the context. Now, again, this is where all the charges come up, right? You Christians are so prudish. You are so repressive when it comes to sexuality. Why do you just keep talking about sex? Here's the deal. We don't. We've never moved, ever. We have been exactly where we've been for millennia. The culture has moved. 
And so now they're talking about it all the time, and so we have to address it. See, I think somehow we think the sexual revolution of the 60s, right? Man, that finally put us on the right path. That's finally when we could let go of the shackles of sexual expression and, and we could finally be free of tradition and religious impulse and that kind of thing. Man, thank God for 1968. Well, that's nonsense. James K. Smith, he's a philosopher and he talks about how the sexual, sexual revolution didn't do that for us. In fact, he goes on to say, Rather, it created a fantasy that ran against the grain of creation. It just runs against everything. that God, look, we are at the tip of the iceberg of what the, the sexual revolution will, will bring about in our world. And I promise you, it's not going to be pretty. Um, there's a great article I would commend to you by a guy named Alex Duke. He wrote an article, How Sex Became King. And, and in it, he kind of deals with this issue and, and uh, points about how the culture's sex became king because our, we just misunderstand all kinds of things. Like what the Bible has to say and its vision for sex and sexual purity versus what the culture and even some within the church are saying. Just run counter to one another. So, so let me point out a few things, and I'm, I'm borrowing, kind of paraphrasing him here, but just, just bear with me for a moment. He, he talks about this. He says, the sexual revolution has hijacked the definition of love, right? Isn't it funny how we throw the word love out about everything now? In fact, back in 2015, when the Obergefell decision came about um, legalizing same-sex marriage, one of, the, one of the popular hashtags was lo- hashtag love is love, Right? And we think, that sounds so compelling. That's, yes, two consenting, two adults that love, or, you know, two people that love each other. That, that's a good thing. That ought to be celebrated. We're all about that. But I don't think anybody actually believes that love is love. I don't think we believe that there is no difference between one kind and another kind of love. I mean, think about this. That is an incoherent statement. If all forms of love are equal to all other forms of love, then every form of love should be sanctioned legally, should be celebrated culturally, should be incentivized economically. Just like we do with marriage. We incentivize this. We celebrate it. We sanction it. Are we ready to do that with polygamy? Are we ready to do that with bestiality? Are we ready to do that with pedophilia or incest? You follow me? Are we ready to do that with statutory rape? You understand what I'm talking about there? I'm not talking about rape. Statutory rape is when an adult over 18 has sex with a minor under 18, and the law says you cannot do that. Are we ready to say that's repressive? That's love is love. Because if we say that, if we believe that there are constraints that ought to be on this thing called love, then we don't believe love is love. We don't believe it's all the same. Well, it should be consenting. Is that it? Is that, that all that we care about is consent? So it doesn't matter what ages, doesn't matter how they're related, doesn't matter the number. 
just matters that they love each other. And we as a culture will celebrate it, sanction it, incentivize it. Because love is love. That's where we are. And that's nonsense. The second thing sexual revolution did, it rejects, it's rejected biblical authority and freedom. Now this is Christian, hear me. If you're not a believer and you want to reject this, fine, but hear me if you're a Christian. We can't get this wrong. We believe God created everything, right? He's the creator of the universe. Now, if you're the creator of the universe, if you're writing the book, if you're the creator of the game, whatever you want to say, you're the playwright, whatever, then you have a prerogative as that to say what stays in and what stays out, right? If God wants to say tomorrow that there is no more eating meat, you all need to be vegetarians, I would weep, but I must do it, right? In fact, God did that, right? He did that. Genesis 1 through 9 is pretty much, you got to be a vegetarian. Genesis 9, okay, you can eat those, but that's it. Because God can make rules like that. If God in his sovereignty has decided that sex is between one man and one woman, if that's his law, if that's his decree within the bonds of marriage, then we must not say, no way, that's backward, that's repressed, that's unfair, that's on the wrong side of history. Who is he to tell us that we can't do what we want to do? See, see, all we're doing when we talk like this, we act like this, we're just rehashing in a 21st century way, Genesis 3, where the serpent says to Adam and Eve, did God really say, what a joke. Did he really say sex is between one man and one woman? Come on. It's the 21st century. That's ridiculous. See, but God doesn't do anything to rob us. He always does it to help us. Can I say it this way? To reward us. I don't know if you remember, Psalm 19. Just let me, let me just read a portion of Psalm 19. I want you to think of this in light of God's laws about sexuality. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them, there is great reward. Does that sound like a God who creates laws to rob you or to help you, to reward you, to give you things that you couldn't imagine? See, if you say, I reject that. I reject that everything God does, he does to increase my joy. I reject this ironic principle in Scripture. This is amazing. That true freedom is found in glad submission to a true king. I want to be free of all that. 
Go talk to the guy at the strip club and ask him if he feels free. Will he say to you, you can't imagine. My life is amazing. I get to explore unfettered sexual freedom, do whatever I want, when I want. I have found ultimate lasting joy in the blue haze of neon lights. You think he'll say anything close? You think he'll, he'll say, the law of God is stupid. What a ridiculous, prudish, backward way. How about the guy or the gal that's addicted to pornography. You think they'd say to you, Psalm 19 is stupid. Psalm 19 isn't the path to freedom. It's the path to being bound up and imprisoned. Who would say they're imprisoned? The one who's free of pornography because they obey God's law or the one who's bound by it? You see what I mean? So we have this weird idea of freedom and authority. So if I can get out from God's authority, I'm free, finally free. And the Bible's gonna say, you are in bondage. You are tied up in knots because this is where true freedom is found. But lastly, the sexual revolution has denied the humanity of Christ. Do you know what we believe, Christian? Do you know this? We believe that Jesus Christ was fully human. Now, when we say that, we don't mean that, um, yeah, he was human just like you and I. Yes, he was. But we mean it also in this sense. We mean that there has never been a person who walked the earth who was more human than Jesus. In other words, he was the human being par excellence. There's never been anyone more human than Jesus. And Jesus never had sex, ever, in any form. And it is his perfection of humanity that is the pillar of the gospel. We believe that it was his perfect humanity that allowed him to die for imperfect humanity so that that imperfect humanity could have a relationship with a perfect God. That's the gospel. If we, if we take away the humanity of Christ, we take away the gospel. So when we say things or think things like this, without expressing myself sexually, I'm not fully human. Without me exploring this part of my sexuality, I don't know my identity. That's fine for the world to say that. A Christian must never go there because that's a denial of the humanity of Christ. You follow me? So, so the, first, the first rule of our sexual freedom is it's in the context within the bonds of marriage. But here's the last rule, and I'll be quick. There's an attitude that must inform sex, and it's sex must be given in holiness and honor. Look at how Paul says this. Verse four, each, of you, each one of you must know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger. And all these things we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, all of that, all of that saying God will do this, God will do that comes out of that each one of you must know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And everything else supports those two statements. Um, so, so let me say, I, I think on the one hand, Paul could be saying to all of us, we must never transgress the boundary, the context that God has given us for sex. One man, one woman within the covenant bond of marriage. So any seduction, any taking advantage of, any abuse in that area is out of bounds and God will avenge it. Hear me, young people. Listen, your hormones are going crazy. You take advantage of a girl. You take advantage of a guy. There is a God in the background saying, I will avenge that. That's no small thing. But, but, but I think there's something else going on here. If Paul is talking here about sex within marriage, like it seems like he might be doing because of verse 4, if, if he's talking about sex within marriage, then it's possible, I think Paul is saying, for sex within marriage to be selfish. Terribly so. I think we all know, whether by experience or by news, some of you in this room, you know this. There's been violence done to you. And some of this is happening within the bonds of marriage. That there is, there is abuse, there's violence, there can be rape within a marriage. And I want you to hear what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, look, sex is not the fulfillment of your individualized lust. Not even within marriage. It's never, why, what is lust? Lust is, I want to get from you. Love says, I want to give to you. Lust uses, love honors. And here's Paul going, that's the way the Gentiles who do not know God behave. Now listen, what's incredible to me is that verse, verse five, those who do not know God is in the context of a passage about sex. So it is possible for your sex life to show that you either know God or you don't. That's, that's incredible to me. Because it's either selfish taking or selfless giving. See, here it is. <laughs> Here's Paul going. Church in Thessalonica, Fiddle Church, here is a line of demarcation between those of us who claim to know Jesus Christ and the rest of the culture. We act in sexual purity like we know God. Not like those who don't. Because here's the thing. Sex, 
like marriage, is a picture of salvation. Do you know that? So, so if you know Ephesians 5, you know that Ephesians 5 talks about, you know, a husband will lay down his life, will love his wife sacrificially, a wife will submit to her husband. There will be this beautiful thing that comes out of this that is a reflection to the watching world, a dim reflection of the gospel. This is, Paul says, I'm telling you a mystery, but it's, the, it's Christ and his church, this reflection in there. And now here in, in chapter 4, he's telling us that your your marriage, your sexual relationship is, is an indication of people who know God. It's an indication. It's showing a picture. Look, I don't want to get graphic here, but what's happening in sex, that the, that the, the, the biblical vision for sex is a total self-giving from one person to another. Not in the lust of your passions, but I give myself to you. This is salvation. This is God saying, I've come. And hear me, like I've come and I've put my spirit in you. I want this to be this this dim reflection. So when we step outside of that, when it becomes for the lust of my own heart, within or without marriage, we mar the picture of God's salvation for us. And Paul says, you can disregard this. But if you do it, you're not disregarding me. You're disregarding God. You hear this? In the area of sexual purity, if we decide we know better, we will disregard God. Disregard it. Paul says, you're, you're not disregarding Chris or any other preacher or myself. You're disregarding God. Now, now, let me just say something. I know <clears throat> sermons like this in some ways can be very guilt-inducing because I don't know anybody <clears throat> who's not a sexual sinner, myself included. Like, in one way, shape, or form, we are all broken sexually. We've all sinned sexually. And I'm not here saying, man... Knock it off. We're supposed to be holy. You better do this. No, because look at how Paul ends this whole section. He says, if you disregard this, you disregard not man but God. But then look at, he says this, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If you are a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, urging you, taking you, helping you, empowering you for sexual purity. That's your defense. That's your hope. And let me say this. Maybe this was a bad week. You'd say, man, I, I, I love Jesus. I really do want to please him. But I stumbled, I fell this week. I looked at pornography. I slept with my girlfriend. I engaged in sexual activity. I just absolutely, I thought about it. There was lustful thoughts in my heart, whatever it was. Jesus Jesus didn't die on a cross just to take care of respectable sins. He died for all that, right? And so we come, and we can come this morning, and the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise, that if you'll come, that if you'll confess to him, 
to say, Jesus, forgive me. There is forgiveness, there's grace, there's mercy, there's help in time of need. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, then you are under the weight of all that sin. And the only way out of it is you put your hope, your trust in Jesus Christ, the one who lived perfectly in your place, sexually perfect in every way perfect. And you take your shelter, you put your faith in him and say, Jesus, save me and he will save you. His spirit will come into you and he will begin to help you live a life of holiness before him, okay? I'm done, let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you. And God, I know these are weighty sermons sometimes. And uh, I'm sure there are people in this room that have failed I'm sure there are marriages where these boundaries are being transgressed and wronged. And I pray, I pray, Father, for some reason, I just feel prompted to pray this morning for any woman that is being abused by her husband and he's using words like submission to her and he's telling her that this is her wifely duty. God, in Jesus' name, I pray right now that you would break the shackles of that, that the truth would come out that God, you'd give her the courage to realize she doesn't have to submit under that kind of yoke at all. And that God, you'd deliver her in Jesus' name. But Lord, where, where there's even boundaries being crossed of selfishness, where people within the bound, bond of their marriage are, are being selfish toward one another, God, forgive us and help us for those, God, who have transgressed sexual boundaries this week outside the bonds of marriage, whatever form that takes, heterosexual, homosexual, God, I pray in Jesus' name for those especially who find themselves here this morning as believers in Jesus, racked by the guilt of their sin, that, Father, they would cry out in repentance to you and you would forgive and they would find mercy and help and grace in time of need. And, Lord, for all of us, that kind of mercy will never lead us into less holiness. I pray it leads us into, into more and more walking and pleasing you, not less and less. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness, your grace toward us. And we ask this in Jesus' name.